Well, welcome to our 25th interview in Ideas and Lives, and we're doing something a little bit different today. Uh, my co-host, Savi Bodhi, will actually be our guest, and one of our former guests, Tamar Jacoby, will be the co-host. Tamar, introduce yourself. Thanks so much, Bob. It's great to be here. I'm Tamar Jacoby. I'm a colleague and friend of Bob's. I, I run a nonprofit called Opportunity America. We focus on workforce training, but I've done a lot of other things in my life, uh, including be a journalist and be a book writer. And that's the point of this show. And being on our and being on the show, but I'm, um, I had so much fun on the show the first time I was on that I wanted to come back, but it's probably going to be more fun to be the griller than the grillee. Okay, yeah. and today we're interviewing Tzvi. We're happy to have you as our guest. Right, I'm co-host and uh, you'll find out all about me more than you care to know. Uh, <laughs> as Tamar interviews me. I, I guess you're going to join in too, Bob, huh? Yes, for sure. Okay. And, you know, remember, you know, your kids, your grandkids will, uh, your relatives, everybody, your friends will all be interested in the arc of your career and how you grew up. And I all hope so. Uh, they'll probably skip around. <laughs> okay. Well, let me just say this. Having been an interviewee, um, it's very useful to oneself to think over the arc of one's life in, a, in an yes, hour. You, you see all kinds of things you hadn't seen and uh, it's very rewarding experience. So that's uh, an advertisement for the show. Um, it's, 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 uh, Thanks Tamar. So let, let's get started. So Tzvi, where did you grow up? Uh, I was born and raised uh, in Brooklyn, New York to a uh, working class Jewish family. Uh, you know, not the typical uh, middle class, but really working class. My father was a plumber. He was raised, both my mother and father were born in the United States too. So I'm not a child of immigrants, but um, my grandparents, two of them at any rate were, from Europe, one from Hungary, both of them. And uh, they were a big influence on my life. How so? Well, we lived in one house, uh, one big house. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a family, it was very, very warm. Uh, my mother doted on me. I was the third child. I had two sisters and uh, everybody in the family wanted a son. So when I was born, it was like, oh, they tell me my father passed out. <laughs> and my mother was always, you know, she thought I was God's gift to humanity. I, I once said to her, mom, this is when I was an adult. Mom, don't you think I have any, you know, <laughs> drawbacks? Or so she said, yes. There are lots of times you don't tell me about what you've accomplished. <laughs> so 
How did you get a sense of humor about that? How did you sort of break <laughs> oh, through? Yeah, we humor was always a big thing. In but my... I mean, some people, some people who are told they're the you know the sunshine and the sunrise and everything all their lives, they don't have any. They buy it. And they don't have any irony. <laughs> my, my father disabused me of all of them. He was he was like, you know, it was something about Jewish men of that generation. They thought that the way to raise a child was to ridicule them. <laughs> still, a, still a good way to raise a boy. <laughs> I, it's interesting. I but it didn't work that well. Yeah. In the, it, it did cause me, I don't know why I am the way I am, but I, you should know, I have big mood swings. I'm, they call me bipolar two. That's an exact diagnosis. Uh, so I guess. Now, when you were growing up, did you ever go out on some plumbing? Uh expeditions oh, with your yeah, father? I was my father's uh, helper. Oh, wow. He, he used to, he worked for somebody else. He never wanted to be a boss. Hmm. And uh, on weekends, he used to do private jobs and I would go out with him. And then when I was 16, uh, he thought I was ready to be, you know, spend my summer as a full-time plumber's helper. Now you'd think that I would re have retained some of that knowledge. <laughs> Nada. I... Okay, so different question about your childhood. Um, the having the European grandparents in the house, what do you think that gave you? Like what oh, kind of oh, it, 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 it isn't so much European. My grandfather, who actually was not a blood relative, he was my mother's stepfather. Okay. Okay. Uh, but he was a big shot in the Yiddish theater in mm. this country. Whoa. He was born in 1879. And he came over uh, before the turn of the century, still the 1800s. And Yiddish was the language, you know, he was. And somehow he became an actor producer uh and he had a troupe he that he directed that traveled all over the united states and canada performing in yiddish because there were yiddish communities everywhere at that time and his favorite stuff was shakespeare in yiddish oh wow he okay. knew Virtually all of Shakespeare in Yiddish translation. Okay, wow. but still, but still, I mean, maybe it wasn't as different in those days, but you still had an influence, a sort of an old world influence in your house that was different from just living with two American parents. No? Yes. Well, it was Yiddish. It was it was definitely the American Jewish exp immigrant experience. That's that's the influence. I still, to this day, still, I love Yiddish expressions. Right. Bob, Bob and I share that. <laughs> you know, we, we sign off by saying Zeigesund. <laughs> we were very fortunate in that Stissel became a popular 
<laughs> well, you don't think there was there's more than that? I mean, they must have had such a different mindset from two people who were born in America, grew up with all that America has to offer. There wasn't kind of a sense of life is tougher or something like that. There was no a lot of humor and oh, that's where you got your. Is that where yeah, you got my your grandfather humor? was a real showman, and uh, some of that I, I came down problem. So, um, what about high school? Tell us about your high school. Oh yeah. So, uh, let me see. You forgot? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I. Uh, hold on. Well, let's, I'm going to overlay while you're thinking or looking up or whatever you're doing, Googling it. Uh, I'm going to add to the question, which is when did you stop thinking of yourself as sort of working class and 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 fated to follow your father as his helper? And right, when did right, you start right. To it, it, it was in school. It was in school. Uh, I loved school. And uh, high school. I. Well, high school, I went to Brooklyn Technical High School, which is uh, in New York City. It's one of the three exam schools, Bronx yeah. Science, Stuyvesant, and Brooklyn Tech. And I went to Brooklyn Tech because uh, I thought I'll be an engineer. That was the closest, you know, to, uh, to working class. Mm -hmm. And I just, I excelled in high school. I was a really good student. I was valedictorian, so I just uh, love the world of ideas. But it's a big leap. I mean, it's like being an immigrant, right? To say, like, like most people don't get up in the morning and say, I'm going to travel 3,000 miles and go to a new country. Same with class, right? Most people don't get up in the morning, no matter what it is, that's tempting them and say, I'm going to put all this behind me. And well, yeah, I'll be honest. I still think of myself as working class. Uh, but an intellectual. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Did you have That's models of, of working class intellectuals that you kind of said, I'm going to be like that? Uh, That's a good question. Not in my family. No, no, no but like in the, that you read or something. Oh, uh, oh, yes. Yeah, well, look, I got caught up in the socialist Zionist youth movement mm -hmm. don't ask how it's a long story but it has to do with a crush i had on a girl i was gonna say there's a girl <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that's a great reason <laughs> that's a very good reason when you're 14. <laughs> so from age 14 i started getting brainwashed mm. and it was definitely not my home influence because my father was definitely not a socialist Mm -hmm. uh no he hated everybody he was an equal <laughs> opportunity hater uh but the nicest guy i mean everybody loved him but you know at home when he would open up with me or you know he didn't have a good word for anybody <laughs> he was very bitter because he had you know he grew up during the depression hmm. so he had a terrible mentality and about life 
Mm-hmm. I think he was a depressive. I know he was a depressive. Oh, depressive. So uh, you, let's yeah. go back to you and your. Uh... I have one more question about the home. Can I do one more question about the home? Sure. So you're in there's... charge. No, no, Bob's in charge. Um, but um, you know, you were you were only a small child during the Holocaust. But surely, people, these people who were from Europe, who were steeped in Yiddish, like even in the fifties, still the Holocaust must have been some kind of a presence no 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 because their family my grandmother my mother's mother was one of 17 children okay they had they were really peasants you know from like fiddler on the roof type village yeah yeah and they all got out and they all came to this country amazing amazing yeah yeah, so and they, there and was they, no... They put it behind them, but that happened yeah. over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, okay, interesting. I mean, survivors didn't talk about it either, but... Um... No, that's true. But my wife, her parents got out of uh, Germany and Austria, but uh, her grandmother's family was wiped out. So she they grew were... up with it, but you didn't, right? Right. So she had that influence. She still has nightmares where Nazis are chasing her. I wasn't even there, and I have nightmares or not. So my, so my <laughs> I wasn't even. I didn't. I'm not even a child of survivors, and I have those. Anyway, let's keep going. Okay. Bob, so you you went into my those... my nightmares involved Donald Trump. By the way. Just... <laughs> so you went. You were a socialist Zionist. Um, yeah, and and, and I really, that? I was so dogmatic, really. <laughs> I mean, you know, a lot of intellectuals, all those left-wing intellectuals were, you know, up to a point, uh, very dogmatic. I don't see how you got ironic. You have all these influences in your youth that would be the opposite of making somebody ironic and the, and the kind of the way you are. It's very interesting. Um, how socialist were you? Like how socialist? Oh, very so. So socialist that I went to live on a kibbutz. In Israel. But that was after college? That was after graduating from college. But I spent a year, my last year of college, I was living on a collective, uh, a commune in New Jersey, preparing to go live on a kibbutz in Israel. But so, so socialist that you thought there shouldn't be private property? I mean, this is relevant. You became right, a finance right. economist. <laughs> yeah, like no. Oh, you know, my friends from that period, you know, anyone who knows me from the early, when I was 20, 21, up until 25, they can't believe that I'm now a financial economist. In fact, you know, when I think about writing my memoir, which will never happen, but I keep coming up with titles. I don't know if you do this, but the title I have is from a kibbutznik on Wall Street. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's good. Well, is it? Well, we could come back to this, but you could talk about it now. So, how do you? How do you see that arc when you look back? Like, like, how do you? Well, you know, it's, it's a lot of left-wing intellectuals, many of them extremely left-wing, uh, you know, evolved. 
pod like, horror, when did you decide? Pod Horrors and the the Irving Crystal. I mean, they were all left wing. But yours is a little different. I mean, when did you decide that like private property was okay? And like, what brought you to that? Oh, well, I, I underwent, I lived for two and a half years on a kibbutz and it was a process of disillusionment with collective living. Uh, Lots of meetings. Oh, oh, I became allergic to going to meetings. Every, I mean, imagine, Kibbutz is like a small town where everybody's got their nose in everybody else's business, but they have a right to. <laughs> because if you, for example, take, take something like your kid wants to go to university. That has to be a decision of everybody on the, in the Kibbutz. Whose kid is going to go to the university? Are you kidding me? And, and, and there is such a thing as human nature. Steven Pinker is right. It's not a blank slate. You know, I thought if you do away with exploitive relationships, everybody's going to dance the horror together. You know, it, it'd be wonderful. Everybody gets a turn. They lift the chair. You know, it's like a big Jewish wedding. No. No. Human nature is such that you got the same yentas and, you know, all the negative types, except now they have control over your life on the kibbutz. Not a way of life that I consider ideal. So how did you get to go to university uh, from the kibbutz? You know, I was so lucky. I decided that I wanted to, I really decided I wanted to become an academic because when I was in college, I just loved it. You know, I loved college. Uh, what did you major in? Philosophy, but uh, I could have majored in history. And I did take a course in economics, which I learned a lot. But I realized that if I was going to finish college living on a commune in New Jersey, I could major in economics. It was too serious. Philosophy, eh, you know, anything goes. So, so how did you get to the uh, university? To economics. So when I decided that I was going to leave the kibbutz, I decided I was going to go on to graduate study. Now, did you and your wife decide to leave? Or was there any She debate? actually liked it. She had been a religious person. We met folk dancing at Brooklyn College. That's how we met. And... We folk danced for a long time together. We used to perform folk dancing. Uh, and gradually, she gave up being kosher. She, you know, of course, it helped that she discovered her parents weren't really kosher. <laughs> they had been lying to her, her whole youth. Anyhow, that's a whole other story. You can interview my wife about that. 
but she she came along you know she believed she wasn't a true believer like me she was a normal human being great person you know you've met my wife yes, she's she wonderful. wonderful so she wonderful came to person. the kibbutz so, so, then, so you went to she to... she would not have gone were it not for me yeah. we weren't married yet we got married on the kibbutz but then she was also ready to leave when you were ready to leave you know she was content she actually didn't mind living on the kibbutz because you know the secret of success i've discovered low expectations <laughs> and she had very low expectations of the kibbutz so she wasn't disillusioned by anything <laughs> you had high expectations but i have very high expectations so how did you decide that you were going to try to get into a, an economics program so this is you? this is where luck comes into play so i wrote I thought I'll go back to Brooklyn College. Okay. Now, the year at this time was 1967. It was after the Six-Day War. And we were on the kibbutz. Uh, we just got married, the 4th of July, 1967. And I wrote to somebody at Brooklyn College a professor of economics, and he was nice enough to write back to me. And he said, why do you want to come to Brooklyn College? The best economics department in the world is right at the Hebrew University hmm. in Jerusalem. Hmm. And it's true. At that time, they had an incredible economics yeah. department. Hmm. You know, because you, uh, you know the names of some of the people. Anyhow, they were all uh, from the best graduate schools. You know, they went. In fact, you know who was just, who, he wasn't in the economics department, but Kahneman and Tversky had just come back from their graduate studies mm. in the United States. I mean, they were all these incredible Top scholars. People. Anyhow, so that decided, so I applied to the Hebrew University and they accepted me and they said, but you have to make up all the economics that you didn't have as an undergrad. Yeah. So I did that in the first year. And then uh, I loved it. It was just great. And I got to know, this is so luck, such luck. All of these guys were trying to get tenure, you know, at the Hebrew University, the professors. And they're writing papers like crazy, but their English isn't that good. So they hire me to edit, you know, the English in their papers. And that's how I got really friendly with all of them. Was the, was the instruction in Hebrew or English? It was in Hebrew. But the my Hebrew at this English. point, I was fluent in Hebrew. You were fluent. This and the but the papers had to be in English. So when yeah. did you decide it was going to be finance? Well, wait. Oh, that didn't happen until much later. I yeah. I, how did you? How did you then? They they recommended you go get a PhD. Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, Shashinsky, who was my master's thesis advisor, was 
writing papers at the time with uh, uh, oh geez, you know, from who got the Nobel Prize? Akerlof? No, 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 at MIT. Solo? Oh my God. Not solo, younger. Mad Madigliani, Fisher. Younger, younger, younger. Who's the same <laughs> age Diamond. as Shashinsky? Peter Diamond, thank you. Pardon me, Peter, if you see this. I don't know how that could have happened. But uh, Peter Diamond visited the Hebrew University. Shashinsky said, here's this guy. He's applying to PhD programs. And he's thinking of going to the Wharton, you know, to the University of Pennsylvania. Peter Diamond says, are you nuts? You got to go to MIT. I said, okay, why? And they explained why MIT. And uh, I said, okay. You were and really went, lucky. The, the path, I, incredible luck, yeah, right? The path was really marked for you. What did your, what did your family think of all this? Um, well, it was really beyond their... Well, that's what I'm looking Was it sort of like you went to the moon, kind of? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But yeah. were they supportive? Uh, well, let's see. My father actually passed away when I was 18. Okay. And my mother remarried. Okay. Uh, so very nice guy. Own. My mother went to work full time. She was a waitress. She loved being a waitress. She married a bartender. <laughs> they lived together for 33 years. That's longer than she was married to my father. And uh, so... Yeah, you moved on. She moved yeah, on. Yeah, I was okay. just living a yeah. totally different existence. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so when tell us about your MIT experience. So the MIT was unbelievable. It was just from an intellectual point of view, it's just fabulous. So a lot of what I, uh, my classmates, at MIT were learning for the first time. I had already learned at the Hebrew University. So, Ooh. and then we had a second child. My first child, Lara, was born in 1968 when we moved to Jerusalem. Uh, and then the second child, Mariah, was born when I was a grad student at MIT. And, uh, we were still living at MIT in the student had graduate student housing with the two girls, but I needed to earn some money. So I started teaching at, uh, at Boston university after my second year at MIT. And I didn't get my PhD until 1975, which was, several years later, it slowed me down because I was teaching full-time at BU. So I think you should say a word about why you love school and why you love ideas, because that's kind of been the thread that you've talked about all this way, but you haven't actually articulated what it is. And I think, you know, it's, it's I'm guessing it's inspiring and something that- It is, and, and it, I'll tell you, this is the thing that Bob Lerman and I share, because he too 
so this is what bonds us. We're both lovers of ideas and not just in the abstract, but, you know, how to make the world a better place. You know, that's where it came from originally with me reading the socialist tracts. You know, I read Marx and Engels and all of that stuff and then branched out. And my favorite author, who I think, by the way, is in that tradition, is, uh, is Steven Pinker with his books on, you know, uh, Enlightenment Now, his latest yeah, one really. is Rationality. Uh, so that's my orientation. But okay, but still, you still haven't talked about, that's kind of the why. You haven't, you know, you haven't, I mean, I'm, forgive the metaphor, but it's like, you know, to me, what's exciting about ideas, there's something about it, it's a little bit like a jungle gym. There's a way you can sort of play in it. But you, what are your metaphors? Like, like, what is it about kind of learning that's fun? Yes. Uh, okay, so, you An know, idea. you know, Kahneman has this book, Thinking Fast and Fast Slow. I'm slow. Okay. I don't get, first of all, I don't get things in the beginning. I'm a, I'm a bit of a slow learner, but it's, it's fun to try and master the ideas, you know, and, and the more I think about them and the deeper I go, I discover that it's a way of, of uh, also communicating and bonding with other people who are into that as well. So I, I, from an early age, people said, like when I was in high school, people said to me, you're going to be a teacher. Because I'd love, when I'd learn something, I'd have to explain it to somebody else. Mm. And, uh, you know, if you ask me, what is my, uh, big achievement success it's it's a textbook which has become the dominant textbook for teaching investments so i was going to ask about that what's that like that's like being sort of mick jagger of your world <laughs> yeah yeah it, it is amazing i i get a kick out of it people I, yes people, people know hard. that book yes but yes. but let's go back a little bit and and you know you're at MIT, and you're taking all these courses, and you know there's a rich array of courses. And you all have right, to so, decide so what to work on and what to early on. Early on, the luck story continues. Okay, so early on, I'm get this. I share this office space with other graduate students. And the on the the office opposite is a guy who just in 1970, okay, so I'm starting out as a PhD student in 1970 in economics. Bob Merton, Robert C. Merton, it's his first year teaching. So he's a year younger than me, but because I've been away for five years, okay, I'm old, 27, he's 26, 
we talk, and he's married, and his wife is pregnant, and I already have a kid, and you know, we we are friendly, and he is teaching finance. Now, this is the beginning of what I call the Mertonian revolution in finance, because this guy revolutionized the field of finance. But did he start start by teaching that? Yes. He didn't know finance. Okay, so learned it by teaching it. So explain to us who don't know what is the Mertonian revolution in finance. Okay, Uh, it's it's several things, but he got his Nobel Prize for discovery of the option pricing model. Okay, that was the first time that discovery was the first time anyone in economics had discovered something like other scientists discover. Mm. Something that wasn't obvious, that was very practical, and that led to, you know, I have compared it to the discovery of DNA in 1953 that gave birth to the genetic revolution. Merton gave birth to the derivatives revolution. Oh, wow. Okay. It was. Anyway, let's go back. So you're. Yeah. I have an office next to him. Keep going. And we get friendly. And I sit in on his classes because I had already finished my general exams. Uh, well, later on. Okay. We get friendly. I sit in on his classes. I never take any of it for credit, though. So I'm getting exposed to finance as he's inventing modern finance. Not a bad place to be. (laughs) Plus, I get friendly with Franco Modigliani, who is the previous generation of finance. And a Nobel Prize winner. And a Nobel Prize winner. and I got very friendly with Franco. So again, I just fell in so good. And so did Franco influence your dissertation? How did that go? Uh, not really, no. My dissertation was influenced in large part by what I knew from Israel. See, in the 70s, when I was writing my thesis, inflation started heating up in this country. That was the previous. Now it's happening again. So all of a sudden, you're in demand. That stuff is relevant again. But uh, in Israel, they had inflation all the time and they had inflation linked bonds. Bonds that were denominated in units of consumption, the consumer price index. So I was very familiar with that from Israel. And when it came time to write my dissertation, inflation, so I wrote a dissertation on hedging against inflation. And Merton became, so because it was in the economics department, Stan Fisher became my principal advisor. Now Stan, again, he didn't get a Nobel Prize, but he was Very good. You know, vice chairman of the Fed and 
And he too, I had a lot in common with Stan because we're the exact same age. And he had two boys, I had two girls. Our kids went to the same Hebrew school. I mean, I just fell in. <laughs> so again, I keep in, I'm always I'm interested in the um, in the sort of dichotomies and how you resolve them. So you'd been a socialist. You you were against private property. You were against wealth. You were against people making money. Suddenly, you're in the thick of thinking about how people can make money. Did this ever occur to you as a I'm not taking a side, right? If anything, I'm on the second side, the finance side. But did it ever occur to you as like, wait a minute, what am I doing? No, no, I got over that when I left the kibbutz. Once I started studying economics, you know. Well, I'm I, about markets. Actually, I read Samuelson's textbook when I was still on the kibbutz. And I also read a textbook in math for economists. So I had prepared mm -hmm. for my studies at Hebrew University. Never did I imagine that I would become very friendly with Paul Samuelson himself. And did you, th you talked a minute ago about thinking that, you know, what you loved books that were making the world a better place and that that was sort of your origin. When you were like being a young finance economist, did you think I'm going to make the world a better place? Oh, yeah, because the whole orientation of the economics department at MIT was very much make the world a better place. So not just make a few people richer, but make the world. Oh, better. no, 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 no. The idea was, you know, it was capitalism like everybody today outside of, I don't know, North Korea, uh, <laughs> believes in a market economy and incentives, right. right? So that was an easy conversion. In yeah. fact, uh, when I was studying economics, one of the themes was uh, Abba Lerner was a believer in market socialism. But so, you know, you, yeah. And we have the example of the uh, Scandinavian countries, which, you know, many people think is terrific, though they are not uh, collective ownership of the means of production. They are capitalist countries. It's welfare capitalism. Right? Yeah. That's what socialism is today. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you were already teaching at BU? Were you already teaching in the business school or? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, that was where I started out and that was where I wound up 40 some odd years later. Now, Although I, I, did, mean, I did have stints at, uh, at MIT and at uh, Harvard. As a visitor, but, but normally uh, when people are graduating, they go on a sort of general job market. Oh uh, yeah, that was you, very interesting. You didn't I, do that. Well, you, you see, okay, so I had an agreement with the Hebrew University that they gave me some financial support to come to MIT, in return for which I said I'll come back and teach at the Hebrew University which is what I thought. We thought we were gonna go back and live in Israel after I got my PhD. And we had an apartment in Jerusalem. 
which we owned until 1980, actually. We didn't mm -hmm. sell it until 1980. Uh, so I finished my PhD, it's 1975, and I get in touch with the chairman of the Department of Economics at the Hebrew University. He says, look, we happen to have a glut right now. This, we don't need you. So my advice is, Stay as a visitor, get a visiting appointment someplace, and in a year or two, you'll come back. So I interviewed in a couple of places to be a visitor. Uh, Chicago. So Fisher Black, who I happened, I knew him from the Boston area, he would have won the Nobel Prize together with Merton and, and Scholes. Anyhow, he's a, that's another story. He was a fascinating character, Bishop Black. He was, took an academic appointment in Chicago and he was in charge of recruiting. So he said, why don't you come out here? You give a seminar. And that's when I met Fama. I met all the people at Chicago, Merton Miller. Uh, and I had an offer to be a visitor because I said I oh, just for a year maximum two. Uh, and then I got an offer from MIT, and I said, "Oh, I'm going to stay at MIT." So, 1975, 76, and you know who was in my class, the class that I taught none other than Bibi Netanyahu. <laughs> so talk about teaching. Talk about... You know, you know, now that I hear myself talk, I'm thinking, what was that movie uh, where he's meets all the famous people and... Zellig? No, no, not Zellig. <laughs> Tom Hanks. Yeah, Zellig. No, 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 Tom no, no. Um, I know who you mean. Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. I'm the Forrest Gump of economics. <laughs> so, so wait a minute. Talk Let's... about teaching. Talk about teaching. Wait, 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 wait. We have to get through. We have to get through his. I think the graduate, graduate the finish of graduate, getting a, a job. So you... oh oh oh. So you know. So, uh, so you stayed at the Sloan School? Yeah, yeah, for that MIT. year. Right. Now, I had been teaching at the Hebrew University, at uh, BU. So there was no job offer forthcoming from the Hebrew University. They still had a glut. So uh, they recruited me back at uh, BU. BU. And that was it. Okay, now let's talk about teaching. Now you can talk about I think I think the big ideas are more interesting than the step-by-step. -step. Um, so talk about teaching. I mean, you was it... Well, I love teaching. Way? Well, here, I have a question. So, you know, you, talk, you talked before about kibbutz. You had this big dream, and then the kibbutz was a disillusionment. You also had this big dream about, I'm going to be a teacher. Did that live up to your expectations? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, I love teaching. And in the beginning at BU for the first 
let's see, from 1972 until roughly, I don't know, uh, 76, 77, I was teaching micro and macro economics. Uh, and I enjoyed doing that. I was teaching it to business students. Mm. In the meantime, I'm learning finance. Mm. So when I came back to MI, uh, to BU after my year at uh, the Sloan School at MIT, I taught finance. And then I was finance. And about teaching, like dig into it a little more. Like, why do you like it? I mean, a lot of people, you know, really smart people, they hate teaching. Mm, it really? People say, uh, "Oh no, I have to teach. I'd rather be at home writing." I think, I think most, I think most uh, academic smart people like teaching. A lot do not. They don't like making exams. They don't like grading papers. I don't like those things either. But what do you like? Uh, uh, imparting knowledge, seeing the light bulb go on in other people, that is fabulous. Priceless, as they say. Priceless, priceless. It's really, it's a great feeling. And and they say to you, you know, some of them, anyhow, uh, I learned it from you. And, you know, even this country where teachers are not as respected as they are, say, in Japan or in China, uh, they're respected. Well, it's not the same automatic respect, but people no. buy. People buy. Yeah, here they here they're more critical. But, so but once you, there's a bond, they appreciate. Yeah, it. yeah, and you know, I love that. And the bond with your colleagues, you know. So so let's go. Reason. Let's go on to the other side of working with ideas. Now you're an academic, you're a great By teacher. the way, as, as Samuelson used to say, and he, I regard him as one of my mentors, uh, he used to say, I never worked a day in my life, <laughs> right? Because if you love what you're doing, you get paid. So in that sense, it's work, but uh, it's, it's, it's more fun than leisure. Yeah. So, so now, now you're no, 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 no. Now you're now you're you're doing one side of the academic enterprise, but you're going to be judged also by writing and publishing. And what direction did that take? Well, it started with my thesis. Hedging against inflation. That's what usually happens, right? With academics, your doctoral dissertation turns into either a book or a series of papers. So my first published uh, paper was common stocks as a hedge against inflation, where I showed that contrary, and this is where I started becoming a contrarian, you know, contradicting the conventional wisdom. Everybody talked about stocks are the best hedge against inflation. And my research showed that the opposite was true. That in fact, whenever inflation reared its ugly head, stocks crapped out. And that was certainly true in 75, uh, 73, 74, 
when the stock market declined by roughly 50% exactly when inflation was taking off. And so when you say research, your research is based on looking at past historical patterns. Is that the... Yeah, and developing models. Right. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm a heavy theorist, but I, I wound up writing a lot of stuff with uh, Bob Merton. We have many joint publications. Uh, so he did the heavy lifting. So what? So we are we're back in inflation. What should we do? Well, this is my latest campaign, and I'm actually this is my what's the word again? Uh, Overton window. Uh, th this is my Overton window because for 23 years I've been saying I bonds. Now, do you know what I-bonds are? I, I, I read a little bit when I was studying up on you, but explain them. Okay. So the U.S. Treasury, back in the days of the Clinton administration, issued, this is 1998 was the year, issued savings bonds. Now, savings bonds had been around for a long time, but they issued savings bonds that paid an interest rate that was linked to the consumer price index. So these are called inflation-protected bonds or I-bonds. And there's a limit on how much you can buy of them, but you cannot lose in well, real terms. You can't you lose when it, defla when it deflates. Though. No, no. Even if there were deflation, you can't earn less than zero, okay? Uh, yeah. So if you're maintaining, uh, let's not get technical about it, but the key point is this is the perfect inflation hedge. And I had said, this is what we need, that, you know, because there was no inflation hedge when I was doing my research. So now it's years later, a couple of decades, and lo and behold, we've got I-bonds. So I become a crusader for I-bonds. Now, if you were to go to my website, you see, you will see a little video interview of me. It's now 23 years later, okay? Saying the best kept secret in America. Because nobody knows about I-bonds. Because the U.S. Treasury doesn't advertise doesn't market them why they're not allowed to because it would compete with private industry so this is where i become a bit of a socialist again yeah, I was okay? say. Yeah. so i am this is something where i think it is my overton moment window window and sure enough, I've been interviewed by newspaper men, and I, you know, I post these things at my website, uh, and that's it. So I bonds. I bonds. <laughs> my my family, my kids, and my wife joke, you know, like they say, like with Bob, it's. It's apprenticeship. I was going to say, well, Bob has one too. <laughs> With me, it's I-bonds. Okay.
How long can you have a conversation with Steve Odie before he mentions the <laughs> So we don't even Tzvi. have a conversation. Tzvi, now I want I want to get at a very big issue, which is not that these are small issues, but um, how do you think about the contribution of financial economics to the economy? And well, how do you? Finance is, is a lot like medicine in the sense that it existed long before there was any science to support it, okay? As long as there's been civilization, there's been finance. And in fact, uh, there's a guy named Will Getzman at Yale who's in the finance department. He's a historian. And he's written a book saying that we owe much of the development of civilization to finance. I mean, if you think about how did mathematics develop? The answer is you needed to keep track, yeah. right? <laughs> it's finance is very basic. But let's and, go back. Yeah. No, 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 I was just going to say, just like with healthcare, you know, I remember reading a book uh, what's his name? Lewis, something Lewis, uh, the guy who wrote Life of, of a Cell. And he wrote a book called The Youngest Science, in which he says medicine did not really become a science until the discovery of antibiotics, yeah. which was in the 1930s, 20s, 30s. And until that time, it was... Doctors were just as likely to do harm as good. They didn't know what the hell they were doing. Okay, but I'm going back to the values clash and the make the world a better place. Just humor me for a minute. There are a lot of people who would say, you know, the financial world is a, a parasitic bauble, you know, in New York, like with a lot of people getting rich, that's not good for Main Street and for the rest of us. They're not saying that about finance professors, but they are saying it about the world of finance, that it's kind of gotten to be all about itself and all about enriching. Yeah, but you, but you know what? If you, if you ask them, they think what, are, what, what makes you nervous? What are you concerned about? What do you have anxiety about? They'll all say, gee, I wish I knew more about finance. <laughs> so you're saying that's like a now that's a an unfortunate option. Well, but we need that too, right? I mean, I mean, what about the argument that you know CEOs are now judged on the share price as opposed to how well the company's actually doing? Is that not is that well the share price is how the company is doing? It's not just how the company is doing that. Listen, we don't have financial planning in this country, right? And yet. We have a much more efficient economy than the communist countries. Why? Because our capital is allocated by the stock market. It gets allocated according to what people think is going to be the next best thing. Now, do we get it wrong? Sure, we get it wrong. But if the bubble is going to burst, it bursts almost right away. And that capital gets reallocated to something else, as opposed to take a country like Japan, where yeah. 
you don't have the stock market deciding. So somebody is not going to let the company go down the tubes. They're going to throw good money after bad. That's not a good system. That's great. That was the explanation I was looking for. That's brilliant. And, and, and let's go a little deeper into the, uh, the Mertonian revolution and the uh, optionality. Um, and whether everything that is does. an option, everything that's how you that's how to understand decision making in a world of risk and uncertainty. Okay, it's all about options. Just think about it. You know, the you always want to have a plan B. Why? Because the best laid plans. This is this is what Kahneman talks about. Kahneman Tversky, right? They they say, what are the biases that we have? Well, one of the big biases is hindsight bias. We think after the fact, you should have done it. Now we know who was right. You never know who was right. Right? Because the next time it could turn out to be the exact opposite way. We're all biased in this way. I'm the same way. We, this is the way we are wired. And it makes us overconfident. Everything looks more certain than it really is. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Everything. It is. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's yeah, the I... issue of luck versus skill. How do you know, you know, how do you know that somebody who's wealthy got there because of skill rather than just luck. Look at me, my career. It's luck, 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 luck. No, no, there's a lot of skill. Okay, yes, you have to be able to capitalize on the luck. Yeah, That is true. Yeah, I'm not saying and, that there's no secret to success, but my seven, that's, Age 78, I think I have acquired some wisdom. You know, as my memory fades, <laughs> there are few principles that I still, you know, believe in. Mm-hmm. One of them is low expectations. <laughs> very, so, very important. Well, Svi, we're, 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 we're past our hour. One more question. One more question. But, but I'm going to let uh, Tamars give a question, and maybe I'll give another one. Go ahead, Tamars. So we started this before we turned on the tape recorder, talking about financial warfare. We've seen we're we're in a moment in a week where we've seen the whole world try to use the instruments of finance to hobble a great power. Like, talk to us about that. Like, that's brand oh, new. Oh yeah. Well, look, you know, first of all, it's always been the case that uh, finance is a big part of warfare. Uh, And, uh, you know- Yeah, the Rothschilds loan money. Right, no, I mean, their books have been written about how uh, Keynes, for example, was the advisor to the British government during World War II. And that was a very valuable, you know, he gave tremendously valuable advice. 
but uh, if you if you want to cripple a country, uh, undermine their financial system, and uh, that is not something that I teach. Okay, I, when I teach finance, I teach how to think them. Yeah, build up an economy. Right, right. Uh, just like people who teach uh, artificial intelligence and, and computer programming do not teach you how to uh, make viruses, right? But we know cybersecurity is critical. Yeah. So there's a, there's a similar thing there, right? Is it going to work? Is it going to work this time? Like, are we going to... It's hard, it's hard to know because, you know, if there are economies where I would have said the people are going to overthrow the regime. Let's take Venezuela. They went from the richest and most prosperous economy in Latin America to a basket case. And the guy is still in power. Even the, their equivalent of Trump died. And the guy who took over after him is just as bad. So there's staying power to these horrible regimes. And I don't understand. I don't understand how Trump could be. The guy doesn't speak a word of truth. And he's still a major influence in this country. I, I don't get it. Yeah. I just don't so get it. Me, uh, to, to end on a broader note uh what's what's the next uh step for Tzvi Bodhi where what's going on well I am working we'll close with that yeah I am working on a textbook to end all textbooks in finance with Robert C. Martin and a third co-author uh named Richard Thacker and we have a contract with Cambridge University Press to write the next leading textbook in principles of finance. Totally different. Well, a major departure from the existing textbooks and one which I hope to see while I'm still alive. Uh, <laughs> The how far, target, how far the along target are you? publication date, you know, for it to actually be used in the classroom is January or spring semester 2023. No, that's not far. That's oh, good. no, I'm sorry. I think 24. Even that's point, not too far. No, at which time I will be 81 years old. And we'll celebrate with a great party. Yes. And it's different. I, it's totally different because the world of finance has changed. Yes. Oh, yes. 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 And it hasn't, it isn't really reflected in the textbooks. I mean, not only that, but all the, the major textbooks in this country don't even mention personal finance. Okay. <laughs> Personal finance, that's what everyone cares about, right? We're on our own. We got to learn personal finance. You go, you can't go to a cocktail party without 
hearing people talk about how we're going to adjust that inflation, this, the how's it going to affect our lives? And it's not in any of the introductory textbooks in finance. How do you account for that? Well, make- we know you're going to make it happen, Sveen. Hopefully. And I think uh, we could go on for hours, uh, but our listeners might <laughs> have uh, other things they want to do. So I think we'll close now. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a lot of My fun. My pleasure. And Thank of course, you, Kamar. We, 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 and we have the, to end with Zygazund. Zygazund. Thank you, Tamar. You were great. No, no, my pleasure. I was Bob and I are it's, Bob and I are always a little like this. Like we're always a little at cross purposes. But I kept wanting to kind of less personalities, more big picture. I hope that was okay. Oh, it was terrific. Thank sure. you very much. Bye. Bye bye.